This is Climate Justice, y'all, a podcast dedicated to lifting up and centering the climate and environmental justice movement in the South. Despite the South being the most biodiverse, diverse, and one of the largest economic engines in the world, we are underfunded and often barred from the decision-making table. Because of that, we decided to pull up a chair and amplify the stories of communities in the South hit the hardest by the climate crisis. We're using good old-fashioned storytelling to shine a spotlight on these Southern leaders from all walks of life, putting in their blood, sweat, and tears to transform the region. The usage of y'all in the title is on purpose. We are honoring our Southern heritage of creativity, resilience, and ingenuity. All right, y'all, it is season two of Climate Justice Y'all. Let's get started. Hey, y'all, I'm your host, Abigail Franks, and I am joined by the fabulous Mauritia Malcolm. Colonialism has deeply impacted our country in the way our society operates since its very founding. And for centuries, our relationship with indigenous peoples of this continent have been harmful, to say the least. Today, a vicious form of colonialism called carbon colonialism is affecting the way our country is attempting to adapt to the climate crisis. In order to fight this crisis, we must listen to indigenous peoples and heal our relationship with each other and the land. Today, we're bringing in indigenous scholar and climate activist, Maya Henderson, who works and studies in Georgia and has expertise about these very topics. Climate justice, y'all. It's real, it's here, and it's about damn time. We listen to indigenous scholars like Maya Henderson. All right, let's get started with the show. All right, let's do this. Hello, hello, good afternoon, uh, depending on where you are. Good morning, depending on where you are. Let's go ahead and get started with the show. So today we have someone who is very special to my heart, who I met in 2019 um, through a UDAL conference, but, and I wanted y'all to get to know her too. So Maya, could you introduce yourself and your expertise and why you moved to the South? Cause you're not originally from here. Yes, Gano, hello. Um, thank you for having me here. I'm really excited. Um, so like Abigail said, my name is Maya Henderson. I'm a member of the Seneca Cayuga Nation of Oklahoma, um, and I'm a PhD student in geography at the University of Georgia, um, which is why I came to Georgia um, and have, I came for my master's and I'm staying for my PhD because I really do love it here. Um, But I'm a human geographer and I work in the areas of climate justice, urban climate action, um, and broadly indigenous resistance and futures. And so right now that means that I'm looking at the ways that settler colonialism as an ongoing project um, co-ops climate action and its world-making possibilities, particularly at the urban scale. But I'm, I'm also invested in the urban scale, not just because it's such a prominent site for climate action, but because of the radical climate justice possibilities, grassroots organizing and all of that that is fostered in urban spaces. And as a indigenous scholar, that means I'm paying particular attention uh, to how indigenous peoples and nations can, but also should, Uh, play central roles um, in urban climate justice because tribal sovereignty is key to climate justice and cities are indigenous lands. 
Beautiful. I, sorry, Marisha. You, I was going to say, I can't wait to call you Dr. Henderson. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. And congrats on completing your master's. Yes, Thank congrats. You. And we just found out she's about to start her PhD tomorrow. So congrats. Yes. So you're going to do well. But before we take a deep dive into like your master's and what you kind of studied and wrote about, I just want to know, how did you get involved in like climate action? Was it preview to you moving to the South? Like, how did that, how did that start for you? Um, I've always cared a lot about the environment. I think it's the way I was raised. Um, it's, I, I don't really remember a time where it wasn't important to me. Um, but I think I got my bachelor's at the University of Oklahoma in environmental sustainability. And it was also the Department of Geography. And so I was taking courses on climate action, but they were also geography courses. And I think the moment that really set me on my path to graduate school in this uh, was taking an equity in the environment course with Dr. Mary Lahan and realizing kind of what geography has to offer and allowing me to pay really close attention to place-based organizing around climate justice, which aligned with the way that I understood my relationship to the land as an indigenous person. I love the term place-based organizing. Can, yeah. what does that mean exactly? I think for me, it means that you are paying particular attention to where you are and you're not trying to create universal solutions to something. You're paying attention to the needs of the land, to the needs of your community, and you are grounded in place, which is really my favorite, what geography has to offer. And my favorite thing that geography as a discipline has to offer is it really allows me to be place-based. Uh, and be attentive because, I mean, indigenous nations, we have, we are grounded in place. Our land, our homelands are connected to our language, our culture, the way we see the world. And so I think that was what really brought me to geography uh, and I think is what makes place-based organizing so powerful as well. Well, I'm honored. We're honored that you're doing place-based organizing in the South. That we need it here for sure. Yeah, I can tell you're very passionate about it. Like just the way that you speak about it, your terminology that you use, it's, it's very nice and warming to hear that. Um, so let's take a deep dive into the next question. So you just completed your master's and your thesis on carbon colonialism. Um, what is that carbon colonialism and how does it impact indigenous slash frontline communities? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so it's a term that I first heard used largely by activists and some academics, typically referring to the outcome of global carbon trading and offsetting regimes. And really it's meant to showcase the problematic features of dispossession and displacement that come with global climate mitigation plans like carbon offsetting. Um, and what typically happens is that there are land grabs and, or th the theft of land in the global south from local and indigenous communities as they're privatized and enclosed to meet the needs of the global north while claiming to have universal benefits due to carbon reduction and like carbon emission reduction, but 
we know that there's not really universal benefits because, well, yes, reducing carbon is good for the planet as a whole, the climate crisis and global warming have uneven impacts. And the people that benefit from these global scale climate mitigation plans are the ones that are causing the climate crisis, like Global North corporations and nations. While the people that are not causing the climate crisis, the indigenous communities in the global South particularly are being most harmed as they're being dispossessed and their land being taken. And these Global mitigation programs re are founded upon and reinforce global power relationships that were set up by centuries of imperialism and colonialism. And so that's why it's carbon colonization. It's really colonization happening through this false veil of carbon reduction that's better for everyone. And my master's focused on uh, gaining insight into how settler colonial cities enroll climate mitigation uh, and narratives of carbon reduction into the project of settler colonialism at the expense of indigenous sovereignty. And so as I was doing that work, I kind of accidentally began to learn about this active resistance that's taking place along the Skagit River in relation to Seattle's hydroelectric power projects because they're violating the treaty rights of many indigenous nations in the region, particularly the upper Skagit Indian tribe, the Soxuyatl tribe, as they decimate fish species, salmon in particular, which are very culturally significant, dewater the river at sacred sites and cause cultural trauma. And so through following this ongoing fight for their sacred river, I realized that this carbon colonialism was kind of happening at the urban scale too, um, because Seattle, a settler colonial city, a settler power, is staking claim to more land, water, resources, uh, dispossessing indigenous people, violating treaty rights, all while saying that this is better for everyone because they're creating carbon-free energy. And to me, I would like to point out, like, first of all, yeah. you succinctly summarized like 300, 400, 500 years to what's happening present day when it comes to how we're approaching climate solutions. So mm -hmm. kudos to you. I've been clapping like the whole time. But, like, Thank you. I would like to point out that this what's happening and like in Seattle and stuff, this is mm -hmm. supposedly happening in a very left, like right. liberal place. And so it's right. like if it's happening there, of course, it's happening in the South, too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like and it's just it's the creation of sacrifice zones and sacrificing yeah. people just for the sake of climate. And that's, I, mm -hmm. that's so frustrating. Right, I, right. I'm laughing because if you don't laugh, you cry. You know what I mean? Right. Like, no, exactly. Well, and that's what happens when our climate solutions are founded out of the same systems that created the climate crisis. Cap capitalism, more specifically racial capitalism, white supremacy, settler colonialism, all of these things. That's what happens is there are still disposable people and disposable lands for the benefit of the few. Mm, that. Hold on. Can you repeat what you just said? Yeah, I, I was saying that when you have climate solutions or climate action that is founded out of the same systems and that created the climate crisis, like capitalism, colonialism, then you maintain that some people are expendable um, for the benefit of the few. 
Yeah, I just wanted to make sure our listeners heard that because yeah, that's so true. And like, okay, so today we, you know, first of all, we've touched on several things already, like in just the 15 minutes <laughs> that, we're, that we've been doing this. But I mean, today, this whole episode and the theme of this episode is Indigenous healing mm-hmm. and what it means to heal our relationship with each other and to also kind of heal our relationship with the planet through an indigenous lens right and so and obviously indigenous like it can't be looped under one umbrella like there's many different cultures and methods and stuff like that and so all that to say what how do we how do we deal with like carbon colonialism what would it look like for the United States to heal its relationship with the land and indigenous people? Like, how how is this all connected when it comes to healing? Yeah, that's a great but really big question. And Super before big I, question, so yeah, sorry yeah. in advance. <laughs> no, 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 you're great. Uh, before I get into that, I do just want to kind of say one more thing on my example of carbon colonialism uh, in Seattle. Is that I want to be clear that I don't speak on behalf of the like Soxuyatl tribe or the upper Skagit Indian tribe. I followed their active resistance that's ongoing. This is happening right now. Um, and I encourage you all to look up and support these tr- nations um, however you can, uh, because I, I learned from them, but I am not a representative of them speaking on their behalf. Yeah, of course. Um- So actually, before we move on to my next question, do you know of any carbon colonial carbon eh, carbon colonialism that is happening in the South by chance? Because it makes me think of like the biomass industry here. Right. Yeah. I mean, I will say that I don't have a specific example, but that as I begin my PhD, those are things that I'm thinking about, right? Like those are, you know, you're kind of hinting at what I I hope to move into as I move forward. because we know that, because my broader question, like I said, is the way that settler colonialism co-ops climate action to reinforce itself, because it's an ongoing project with goals to naturalize the settler, erase indigenous people. Um, and it's also intertwined with, you know, other dehumanizing systems, white supremacy, racial capitalism, all of those things. And so that's definitely, I know Seattle's not the only example of this happening at not the global scale. Um, So you're definitely hinting towards what I hope to look into as I move forward. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it's just, you know, you kind of got my mind turning when it comes to what colonialism looks like, um, Mm -hmm. especially in the regional context. And so- I guess with follow-up, how, what would it look like if there wasn't carbon colonialism? Like how, what would it, I guess we're going to like Imagineer here, right? Like we're, Mm -hmm. we're thinking of the future and hopefully the near future, but what would it look like if the U.S. healed its relationship with indigenous people? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. I think that Unfortunately, the first thing that comes to my mind is what's happening that's the opposite, but I think we can learn from what is happening that is not healing. Um, And that's the very recent Inflation Reduction Act, which is an example of not climate justice, Mm -hmm. 
right? And it's it's very clear that indigenous people and broader frontline communities were not uh, part of the creation of this bill. And it shows once again that indigenous people are disposable to the United States. So in uh, to the part of the question that's about healing our relationship with the land, um, you know, this bill maintains extractive relationships with the land. It opens up millions of acres of public lands to oil and gas leasing, which is often in spaces like Alaska or the Southwest, which is near tribal lands. And that means man camps or the worker camps that follow along with extractive pro um, with extractive uh, projects. And we know that man camps are connected to the epidemic of MMIW, which is the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. And so this is not a climate justice solution. This is harming the land and indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And like, it's opening. Oh, Marisha, I see your, I was gonna say, I was gonna mention that like, this is opening up a lot of area for leasing in the Gulf South in particular. Yes, and, yes, absolutely. Um, and a lot of indigenous communities live in the Gulf, like the Homa Nation, yes. Louisiana, for instance. And it's just yes. like, and uh, even it opens up uh, room for the Mountain Valley Pipeline in North Carolina, Virginia, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff in the yeah. Appalachia area. Uh, Marisha, I see you're unmuted. Yeah, I was I was just going to jump into the next question because I think that your answer, it, it honestly led us directly into the next question. Um, and that's just what are some climate solutions that are based in indigenous knowledge that you know of? I think my answer is always when I'm asked about what a climate justice solution or climate solutions and in indigenous knowledge is, it's land back. And that seems simple and I mean, it's, it's clear, it means what it says. It's a call to action to return indigenous lands into indigenous hands and especially treaty lands in the US. Because uh, land back is the most authentic way of employing indigenous knowledge and governance systems to restore our relationships with the land and our non-human relatives to let the earth heal. And it's a path to real climate justice because like I kind of mentioned earlier, indigenous knowledge is place-based and grounded in our land and our community's needs um, and is key to solving the climate crisis. I mean, we're 5% of the world's population and we protect some 80% of the world's biodiversity. Um, and land back is really about reclaiming all that was stolen from indigenous peoples, our land, our ceremony, our education and governance systems, language, food. Um, but land back's also very much connected to liberation and sovereignty. And I always look to the Indian collective, like NDN collectives land back campaign and the Red Nation to learn more about it. And I love, cause they make it so clear the way that land back is also connected to the liberation of our black and brown relatives, because you have to first divest, defund from institutions that are founded upon white supremacy, racial capitalism, settler colonialism for true liberation and land back to occur. So land back for those, I know, God, I mean, if you're asking, especially like white poor folks about land back and mm -hmm. the thought of 
losing their I think they assume that land back means that they lose like their land like they think right. it's a from what I can tell it seems like a sorry if you hear my dog scratching her neck in the background <laughs> she is going ham but uh yeah to me I think people are worried that it's more I think white poor folks slash white folks in general are worried that native people are going to treat us the same way that we treated y'all. Right. Or treat y'all. You know what I right. mean? And that's not what land back is, from what I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because land back is, it's about the undoing of these harmful systems, not the maintaining of them just against other, a different group of people, right? Like we're not, I, I hear people talk about how land back's not an eviction notice because we don't operate by those same harmful and exclusive logics um, that brought, that settler colonialism brought with it, right? Yeah, so what I am hearing, sorry, Marisha, you jump in. Nope, you go ahead, you go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say what I'm hearing when it comes to climate solutions and us talking about healing our relationship with the land and stuff, there's some pretty clear steps. Like one, uh, <laughs> honoring the treaties mm -hmm. for one, that's like bare minimum. That's like the foundational. Floor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, we're not doing that. So like honor the treaties, land back and also like genuinely teaching and learning about how to respect the land and the people who live yeah. on it. Because I think part of what's, what the United States is struggling with is heal, like healing the relationship we have with each other first. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how can we heal the relationship with the land if we can't even treat each other the way we deserve to be treated, you know? Yeah. And so, and I think, oh, sorry. You go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add in that I think another key kind of foundational, and this goes right along with honoring the treaties, like absolutely, is respecting tribal sovereignty, because that is key for our protection of our own culture, lands, languages. Um, and that's like you were also touching on hard for the U.S. to do. I mean, we've had... Uh, Supreme Court cases this year that have knocked down tribal sovereignty. And we have the upcoming ICWA case, the Indian Child Welfare Act case, that if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the white evangelical families that think they're entitled to native babies, like that will be another hit to tribal sovereignty. And all of these things are connected to climate justice. I think often, and one of my biggest issues that I had found being in environmental spaces is that they weren't really climate justice oriented. They were just centered around the environment, reducing carbon emissions, recycling, but all of this is interconnected. Protecting native children is connected to climate justice because indigenous nations are central to climate justice and so is tribal sovereignty. Um, and the Climate Justice Alliance, I was just recently reading, has stated that the U.S. should establish a 12-year fund dedicated to repairing government-to-government -government relationships and invest in indigenous-led just transitions. Because if we want 
um, a just transition to occur, it needs to be indigenous led and frontline community led more broadly. Otherwise you will have outcomes like we were talking about with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, where it will open up pipelines in North Carolina in the Gulf South and in all of these places that are near indigenous communities and other communities of color. Yeah, okay, so I completely agree with that. I, that, I feel like that would solve a lot of problems like everything you just said. <laughs> Um, could you real quick, could you explain what tribal sovereignty means? I mean, sovereignty is the authority to govern ourselves, right? Like we are when the reason for my understanding of Indian federal law, which is very complex, um, the reason that Indian federal law in the U.S. looks more like international law rather than domestic is because when you enter into when we were entered into treaties with the United States, that established a government to government relationship. And so we are a separate nation. Um, I am a citizen of the United States and I am a citizen of the Seneca Cayuga Nation. Does that, if I hope that like kind of clarifies, but it is no. the ability for us to govern ourselves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I just yeah. want to clarify that just in case. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Like, so I'm not too familiar with like the treaties and whatnot. Can you just go a little bit more in depth into like, what does that mean? Like you're a citizen of your tribe. What does what that actually how does, how does that look different from being a citizen of the United States? I feel like that's a better question. Um, so, I mean, I'm a citizen of, of both. So being a, like being a citizen of a, of a tribe is, is a political identity as well. So that's where, you know, being, you know, you're culturally indigenous, indigenous, it's an ethnicity, but it's also, uh, I think Nick Estes, who's a indigenous activist and scholar um, said to be indigenous is to be inherently political. Um, I can't remember where I heard him say that. It might be in one of his books, but because you are one, you are in a settler colonial nation that goal is to eradicate and replace, right? So your existence is resistance, but also you are part of a separate nation. So the history of treaties is, is very complex and I honestly don't have, um, like that is, is not my area of expertise, but the U.S. has entered into over 500 treaties with indigenous nations um, and has broken basically all of them. Um, and so when you enter, when the U.S. enters into treaties, which are supposed to be the supreme law of the land, that's something you do with a separate nation that you see as you see a sovereign that is separate, um, a government to government relationship. Um, so I hope that answers a little bit of your of your question yeah yeah I, I think that it did i think that it did um so before we end this off i just want to thank you you've taught me so much so i've been a little bit quiet just because i've been learning a lot i'm not i'm not too familiar with like the different terminologies especially when it comes to like you've been like the treaties and whatnot so i just i was just learning a lot yeah during this episode and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't want you to take it the wrong way. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Thank you. Um, but to end it off, I just want to know uh, what gives you hope to keep fighting, to keep going, to fight for your people? Yeah. What, what gives you hope to even go into and get your PhD? What gives you hope? Yeah. We um, covered... Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say we covered so much in this episode and you gave us a lot of steps of what how much work we need to do. Um, so how do you keep going? 
I think, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about what gives me hope is indigenous youth. Um, seeing indigenous youth be un like unapologetically taking up space and maintaining connections to their tribes and their culture and or reconnecting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just native people not doing things not just for themselves but for their community like one of my really close friends uh nathan little crow is is starting at the top nursing program in the country fully funded with goals of not just helping herself but then returning to her community and doing something to benefit her tribe and her broader indigenous community i was just home in oklahoma at my tribe's grounds um and saw so many young men uh, participating and helping and learning our language the intricacies of our ceremonies and seeing young people do that is so yeah like the most uplifting thing watching our the you know the next generations keep our culture alive and well and so my inspiration and hope always comes from my indigenous community for sure